And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or possibly one of our wonderful and very appreciated community partners all the way across the country and now into the United States as well. You could be listening also from Peru because we have a podcast and we actually have a lot of international listeners. So you could Sweet. be anywhere. You could be on Mars. <laughs> the Mars rover is a big fan of ours. Yeah. Yeah. Get email all the time. <laughs> so uh, we've got a fun show for you today. We're going to hop around a little bit. Uh, fun is fun is always a certain context. Uh, when I mean we're going to have fun, when I'm saying it on the show, I always mean that. It, it's slightly differently than I would as if I was saying it to you in conversation. But still, we're going to have some fun. So up today on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about... This has been uh, headline news, if you will. Uh, of course, um, the... NAFTA lawsuit over Keystone XL uh, is uh, very, very relevant. And I'm uh, uh, largely I'm uh, and I know, Stefan, this gets under your skin a lot, too, is um, people using sort of clickbaity headlines to sort of drive readership. Um, This is one where I think the clickbaity headline completely nailed it, which was um, I'm paraphrasing, but there was like, you know, 20 different articles that had very similar headlines that basically come down down to this is exactly why we should be terrified about free trade deals. (laughs) Um, and so we're going to get a little bit into that, how that relates to, um, why am I blanking on the name of the upcoming, the TPP, there we go. uh, and, uh, all sorts of other uh, things as well, because this is happening, of course, under the less, uh, restrictive NAFTA forthcoming of the TPP. So we'll have some implications from that as well. Uh, we've got, um, the, uh, Keystone XL, um, sorry that the, the, that's the same thing I'm reading. <laughs> uh, we've oh right, uh, Stefan's thing, which was a um, repairable phone, which is not a new item. This is actually a bit of a um, a soapbox moment for Stefan because he's been championing this for some while. But we have some some updated information about that. So um, building things that are designed to last and minimize waste. So that's kind of cool. That's kind of interesting to talk about. We want to talk about. We're going to talk very briefly about the massive, absolutely terrifying methane leak that's happening in California right now, and and maybe a little bit about how that could possibly happen in Canada as well. And also, I have some quick announcements before we get to our our first interview, which I'll I'll tell you about in just a second. Just really briefly before we get to our first interview as well, a couple of exciting announcements. One, we just finished doing a bunch of uh, interviews for some new co-hosts, and uh, we're going to be welcoming over the next couple of weeks uh, a few new volunteers. I'm going to introduce them properly when they're actually here, because I feel like that would be more fun. So we'll leave you in suspense for now. But we have some new new voices coming to you um, as well over the next few weeks, a little bit of fresh blood and a little bit of a different perspective. So that'll be interesting. We're going to get them into the mix and and you will probably more frequently will be hearing people other than me being the main host so i might just start coming in just to like put my feet up like Stefan does it's it's a great gig gig. (laughs) i didn't even mention i'm sorry i've been talking to Stefan. i didn't even mention i'm also sitting here in studio with emma ma who's been very quietly smirking at us from the the other side of the studio there you guys are highly entertaining (laughs) i'm also happy to just sit back and put my feet up So, uh, and thank you. You did a great job last week as, as well. For Thanks, Darren. Guest we missed you. Aw, I was asleep in bed. <laughs> so um, we're going to get to that as well. So we've got some new people coming in. Um, that's going to be really exciting. We're going to play be playing around with a little bit of a, a format as well. This will be the last week as well also that we, um, uh, we, we, we're, we've been doing an extended sort of bonus show. Um, this will be the last week that we're going to have to skip it, unfortunately. And then we'll be back into doing that as well. A little bit of an after show. Uh, get some bonus content. We'll get some new people. We have a new tech coming in today. All sorts of new and exciting things so so uh stay tuned for that of course and you can always check the website uh, for updates but without further ado i believe we're ready to go here so i'm going to introduce um 
uh, the guest, and then we're going to hear him introduce himself a little bit. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit of a story about how I got connected to it. So it's Jeff Mann. Jeff Mann is an artist, um, and he's an artist that uh, is originally from the U.S., and he moved to Canada. And what he's been working on essentially has been making art out of car parts. And so he's really big on sort of using found items, and uh, he uses a, a process he calls – I'm not really big into the art world, so I don't know if this is like a thing or if this is like a thing he made up. But it's like discovering, and so he'll go in and sort of play with pieces and and sort of let these objects that were just sort of pe- leftover bits of drive trains and I don't even I don't know anything about cars. I'm using words I don't understand. Uh, you know, engine blocks, and I think that sounds like an engine thing uh, and stuff like that, uh, and turning them into actual art. Uh, we'd been trying to connect for about over a year and finally we made it work. So I went down with a, ca- with a camera and uh, you'll hear him in a couple of spots here refer to something just very briefly that obviously you can't see. That's because there is actually a video copy of this as well. So I really encourage you to go to the website afterwards and uh, and check out that post. You can actually see his art there and there's some links to his website. It's really fabulous. But without further ado, we're going to get to him. So the very first thing we have, I have it sort of uh, clipped up here from the, from the video uh, version to share with you today, uh, is actually just him introducing himself and then I'll come back to get to, to my questions for him. I'm Jeff Mann. Uh, I'm an artist, a welder. I work with car parts. And uh, I uh, have um, worked with car parts because I believe well, there's too many cars in the world as one part of it. And I think we should be more aware of what we're doing with cars. And the other thing is I just find car parts fascinating. They're, they're amazing parts. They're parts I could never do anything with, I mean, make myself. So I get to play with them. And the fact that there's millions of each part lends the, to the idea of, of chopping them and working directly with them rather than worrying about, oh, I'm making the right cut all the time. All right. As I should also add as well that in case you hadn't noticed there, um, it was taking place in a cafe. So there's some some spoon cleaning going on in the background. Uh, so the first thing I asked Jeff about was was just sort of uh, um, about the art itself. So I asked him about what the types of materials that he uses and where he gets his supplies. It's obviously, or you know, stuff like that. Um, but also because the parts in a transmission shop have already been taken out, and so I had the chance to use them. Um, and th- those are actually the parts that are most interesting to me in general. So, for instance, here you can see what's called a valve body, the top of a valve body on this piece, and it's part of an automatic transmission. Incredibly complex piece of aluminum. I could never make it in my entire lifetime as such a complex piece. So I get to take these parts that engineers design and rework them for art. And now some of this is shovels, so you're going to see some shovel blades here mixed into the pieces because I just love shovel blades and I can't stay away from them. And there's another little part here, the, the mustache is part of what's the part of the clutch of an automatic transmission. And I should say, I know a fair amount about cars, but I know sometimes I don't get my details quite right, so I get corrected here and there, which is fine. I don't have any problem with that. And over here, you can see this is a clutch housing right here. Um, and they're really, really beautiful. And this is actually the dashboard out of an old um, um, pickup truck um, from probably like the 50s or something like that. And farther over, that's um, it actually, believe it or not, it's a muffler. They have new mufflers now that are incredibly complex, especially in trucks. And so you'll see a lot of amazing shapes in them. And then I've added some other parts. Um, and I don't even know what some of these parts are, but this is an exhaust pipe here that's added on here. I'm not really sure what this part goes to here. All right. So that was, as so I said, part the, of it uh, was. Uh, oops, sorry. <laughs> Having a little trouble with the autoplay today. That's my fault for giving uh, Kevin seven different files to play. Uh, so as you, as I said, there he was referring a little bit to some stuff that you couldn't see. If you're uh, interested, and I encourage you to go check out the video to actually see that. But but now we just kind of get um, we talk more just about in general. So now I was asking him about um, what drew him to the subject in general. 
And, and so part of it was, uh, I come from Maine originally, and Maine actually had a referendum process, and they did a um, stop the widening of the turnpike as a referendum, and it actually won. And so they did stop for a while the turnpike. Uh, and so I kind of got into the political side that way. And also I got into the, to the car part side because I was hired by a, a technical college to convert to a community college. And that also tells you I'm from the States because I don't think you have those particular things here. Um, and in the process, I did a van, a traveling theater van. And I, I made dummies with television heads and all that kind of stuff. But we tore the whole van out and cleaned it out entirely of all the parts so it was really lightweight and easy to move around. And in the process, I ran around all these amazing parts. And I just said, i got to use these things. And so that's kind of, those are the two sides of, of kind of where, I, where um, how I work. The problem for me, if you want to call it that, a little bit of a conundrum, is I like to work directly by response. And so I take a car part and I look at it and I see, what, you know, what does it do? What's it gonna, how's it going to work? And I'm going to grab a mask right here to show you a little bit of that. So, for instance, this is part of an exhaust system right here. And they look, um, it's beautiful woven metal, but they look pretty straightforward and plain. And I never realized until I pulled them off that I could shape them as how I wanted them. And once I could, saw I could shape them, my response was, okay, kind of like a horn or something like that, kind of rhinoceros-like. And that's the idea is I'll, I'll respond to something and get a sense of how it might work. And for this, you know, this could have worked flipped upside down in some ways too, so I can see the possibility there. But this one had the stronger feeling to me, and so that's why I went this way. The surface, I had no idea what it was going to be when I start because I don't work with color right away. I add that later. And this piece here is part of a transmission I cut out, flattened, and used like that. All right, so next I asked him, uh, and I was kind of a little bit of fun with the phrasing here, of course, where does the eco-rubber meet the artistic road? It was, uh, I come from Maine originally, and Maine actually had a referendum process, and they did a um, stop the widening of the turnpike as a referendum, and it actually won. And so they did stop for a while, the turnpike. Uh, and so I kind of got into the political side that way. And also I got into, yeah, I, I guess you could, there's a lot, a lot to that. Um, but one part I'd say is I kind of want to honor all the energy that went into making the car and the, and the use of that car. It seems a shame to me that we throw them out all the time. You go to a junkyard and it's just millions of cars being thrown away. You know, in the States, I think it's like 11 million cars a year are ditched. So you can roughly figure one-tenth for Canada about that number. Um, they have all these amazing parts in them. And the idea that they just are thrown away like old shoes <laughs> just seems like an incredible waste to me. It feels like we should do so much more with them. So this is my way of uh, both honoring the parts and honoring what went into them and also hoping to make people aware of what we're doing with cars. Because we, we are in a world now where we're living more as in a carscape and less in a landscape. And I think we have blinders on around that. We don't see what we're sort of doing to the world. And I want us to be more aware of that. Now, it's a little hard looking at these masks to get that awareness. So many times I accompany my shows with information about cars and try and encourage people to think about them. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying owning a car is bad. I'm not saying driving is bad. We live in a car world. And, and for most of us, we need a car to exist unless you're in a city. You know? And so that's not the problem. The problem is can we reconstruct our world to make it less so we don't need cars as much? All right. So sorry, folks, we're just having a little bit of trouble with the, uh, the files today. But the next question that I asked Jeff Mann was about um, how 
trendy uh, sort of reclaimed uh, stuff is uh, sort of these days, you know, trendy uh, reclaimed furniture and all that sort of thing. But, you know, we have these material, we have mountains and mountains of these materials. And, and you know, it is really nice. It is really fun to have to see things that were had some other purpose be turned into something new and useful. And, and I sort of asked him, why, why do you think it's trendy? Why isn't this just what we always do? Why isn't this the norm? Good question. I, I think part of it is, you know, artists um, don't like limits, and that's sort of too bad because I think within the limit you can be incredibly creative. You don't have to have the perfect paint. You don't have to have the perfect part. You don't have to be in control as much. It's more how creative you are, and that, that goes back to the idea of response, you know. Um, I do a lot of workshops with printing T-shirts with car parts and tires, and some people find it very frustrating to start with because it's not controllable. We work wet on wet all the time, constantly wet on wet, so the pieces will get slightly different colors on them, and then when they print them, they'll mush a little and get different colors too. And for a lot of people, they want that control, and I think control's a little overrated. I, I shouldn't say. I should say everything's fine <laughs> you know what everybody does is fine i just think there should be more room for kind of that uh a little bit of sloppiness maybe in there if you want to call it that so in the nature of recycling stuff there is going to be a certain amount of sloppiness you, you may not get exactly the part you want that part may have a bolt welded onto it that you can't get off without damaging the piece you know so it's responding as well as imposing if you want to call it that all right. So Jeff goes around. He was telling me about how he goes around to his uh, he goes around with the shows and, and he'll accompany it. And he was very clear. He, he made very clear to me um, that he he doesn't consider himself an activist, but there's definitely an, an environmental angle to his work. He's not just using the car parts. He's trying to get people to think about uh, the parts themselves and about cars themselves. So I asked him how people tend to react to that particular environmental angle to his art artwork. That's a tough one because I think there's a certain group of people who, who accept we need to think more about what we're doing with cars. And obviously a lot of people, you know, they ride bikes, they walk, um, take public transit, and that's great. You know, that is a really solid and significant piece of what, what we probably should ultimately be doing. Um, I don't like to turn people off too much. I, one show I had some pretty big uh, messages on the wall along with my pieces, and a friend of mine saw the show... Um, and she really felt like because she drove, she felt guilty. <laughs> and I didn't want that. You know, I don't want people to feel guilty. I want them to just think and plan for something in the future that's different or, or that we all have the option to choose differently if we want to. Um, so, I, yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, people do talk a lot about what they've done or what they're trying to do about cars or their awareness that, oh, yeah, I shouldn't drive as much as I... I do, but I don't know what to do. So there's a lot of mm, ignorance, maybe, about p other possibilities, but also it's really hard. Like, I live in Kingston, and the bus service is great, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't cover all the areas. And so if you had a job somewhere that wasn't on the route, you know, it could be really tough for you. All right. So this is the the last thing I asked him, um, and I, I also just wanted to see before we get to this one. Uh, Jeff really impressed me with uh, with what he said here, and I, and I wanted to sort of cue and warn my my co-host that I actually want to talk about something that he says right at the end of this last final answer, uh, at the end of it, which was uh, an idea that I think makes a lot of sense, and it's it's really interesting. But I'd, I'd never actually thought about it before, so I'm I'm going to tease you. I won't tell you what it is, but I'll tease you that it's there, and then we're going to chat about it a little bit when we come back. So here's the last thing. What I asked Jeff was, how do you balance the sort of edu education 
education and inspiration parts of your work about, you know, trying to take a different angle about sort of not just how do people react to it, but how do you, knowing that people are going to react to it, how do you sort of then think about it when you're trying to infuse it into your work? I try and avoid the sense of attacking people. I think the, the way, I was a mediator for years, and one of the ways to possibly focus on a solution to a problem was to talk about the future. Uh, as a way of, of those people not being locked into their conflict, but to say, how could this work next time this happened? Or how can this work in the future? You know? And if you look at it that way, that's where I'm focused. Because all the things that people do to try and um, help our transportation system and live in environmentally friendly uh, is great, absolutely great. And, and I don't want to take anything away from that at all. Along with that... I think it's very important that the society plan, that we have something like reduce, reuse, recycle, which is now everywhere, that we should have that for, for transportation. Whether, you know, whatever it is, I don't know what, it, what it's going to be, but something like that. So people can look at it and say, oh, yeah, if I don't drive, that's higher up on the hierarchy. That's where I should be, be and not down here, which is driving wisely. Great. It's great to have a fuel-efficient car. Better would be to not drive or to drive less. You know, so those, so maybe we could have some kind of hierarchy like that. So that's where I think we can engage people. I think we can engage developers in that. If we say in 20 years, we're not going to build a highway to meet that capacity. We're going to we're going to plan to build our um, development along a corridor. And you, as the developer, in 20 years, we'll deliver people to you. We won't deliver cars to you. As a society, we can do that. You know, which right now we do the opposite. We say, oh. You want to build that building or that mall, and we have traffic problems, you have to put in a stop sign. You have to put in a curb cut. You have to build an, a um, you know, limited highway or whatever it is, and we help with that. And I think that's where we should stop and say we're not going to increase our capacity. And maybe that's part of that hierarchy, too, is no more vehicular capacity out there. You know, we're going to stop it you know, at some point and say, okay, that's it, no more, and now we're going to work down, kind of like carbon emissions. You know, they're going to try and draw a line and say, no more beyond that point. As an artist, and this is kind of wandering away from cars a little bit, but I really do believe um, we should look a lot more at response. I, and again, I don't want to say that all the ways people approach art is great. It's really great. I, I feel response is a little undervalued, and I, and I like the idea of being a little less heady about stuff and being more f about feeling. You know? And so I hope that more art is like that, that people are willing to have faith that their response will show. It may take time. Uh, for me, sometimes I leave a piece up on the wall for a year before it finally finishes because I, I don't feel it for a while. You know? um, so I guess I'm just put a little plug in for a little less heady approach to art all the time and, and take some chances, respond to stuff, and see what happens. You know? um, just want to let you know, obviously, this is a show at the Flying Pony Gallery in Portland. and doing masks here. I'll be doing them at Bending Spoons in February, and I can't remember some of the others that are coming along. But I did want to say that I also do uh, workshops all the time um, with printing T-shirts uh, with car parts and tires, and also have expanded into doing some murals um, that way. We did Big on Bloor and um, On Common Ground this, this year, and so I'm always available for that. My website is www.jeffmanart.com. All right, and there we go. That was so that was Jeff Mann and uh, and Stefan. When I told you about this, you were like, "Oh, was that the guy that was at the the thing?" Because you'd actually already yeah. seen some of his work. Yeah, yeah. He had a show at uh, the Queen Mother actually cafe, and 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 I was I was and I was 
watched, looked at a bunch of them and had a whole conversation with almost about all of them. And then it turned out to be the same thing. It was so funny. The small world. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, uh, you should watch the video for two reasons. One, because it will have the questions in, in the correct order. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. Uh, secondly, of course, because, you know, a couple of times he refers to the work. And you, re- you really should see it. It's really, really neat stuff. Uh, it, the, the screen cap that I used for the sort of thumbnail for the video was Jeff and I holding up to sort of two of the masks, uh, which I thought was kind of fun. Uh, but the point there that, that I thought was really interesting that really, you know, made me go, huh, I hadn't even actually sort of thought about it that way was, was the idea about framing transportation in the way that we frame carbon emissions, which is that, you know, whether or not, whether or not we actually are going to do it or not, theoretically, the idea is place a cap. It's a little bit ahead of where you are. Let everybody know we're going to go there. That gives them something to work toward and understand, okay, you've got a little bit of time. You can do a little bit more, get your business sorted out. But then at this point there are, we're just not going to produce any more carbon emissions and we have to start coming back down and to take the same similar sort of angle to transportation and say, you know, uh, we've got some stuff in development right now. We've we've already authorized a bunch of projects that are maybe going out 10 years, but we're not authorizing any new roads. All roads that exist will be repaired and maintained, but we're not building any new roads. And after that, we're going to uh, we're going to build transit infrastructure. We're going to build bike lanes, maybe maybe bike, not even bike lanes like uh, along the sides of roads, but maybe like the new cool superhighway thing that's in uh, Germany. I forget how long it is, but some ridiculously long uh, bike superhighway and all that stuff. And we can have all of those things. But at some point, there's just not going to be any more roads. Uh, and I wanted to just ask uh, either of you, both Stefan and Emma, um, A, are you, do you like the idea as much as I do? And then B, if we assume that we're going to get a similar deal, let's just say that we are going to get a similar deal for carbon. Do you think that there would be taste at some point to try and actually enact something like this? Do you think it's it, let's assume that we're going to get the carbon deal under the similar idea? Do you think we could build on that and, and expand that trio to transit realistically? Let's say in North America, let's say in Toronto. Uh, so I, I would say that the difference I would make one at least one caveat, which would be that I would not say necessarily no, no more new roads, given that to some extent, you know, we're going to have to expand in different ways. Uh, but widening and expanding the size of highways and stuff like that, A, has been proven not to work. Uh, as far as whenever anyone says, oh, we need more capacity, let's expand the highways, we just fill up with more cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fascinating bunch of studies done uh, on about uh, whether or not expanding highways actually reduces travel time, and it's shown that it doesn't, uh, because it just actually just creates more space for more cars, and then you go back to the exact same speed. Uh, so I think understanding that, I think w- w- it, forcing limitations on 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 on, on single occupancy transportation uh, is the way to drive other transit forward. Uh, you know, if if I can't get my 15 cars on the road, uh, I will look for another way. Now, of course, you have to actually invest in transit uh, infrastructure then, or else you're just leaving anyone in the lurch. But, like, please, we just have to invest in transit. That's what everyone's been saying for about 50 years here in Toronto. So, All right. So let's hear from Emma on that point, too, and then we'll go to our first music break. Yeah, absolutely. And as we as we're aware, transport or transportation is one of us our highest emitting sectors, so we have to. It's an absolute necessity. What I liked about the philosophy that Jeff communicated was that it's not just sort of this punitive approach that you have to give people options. And so you can you can force a cap if you want to call it that, but you also need that vision, um, as, as Stefan mentioned, that gives people those options. And in a lot of ways, um, we're seeing that it's coming way, way later than it should have. Uh, you know, we've seen 
uh, transportation be an issue at during municipal elections here. We've seen it in the recent federal election. And there's no doubt that we need to see massive levels of investment, smart investment in the sector and and quickly to meet existing demands. But absolutely, I think we need to we need to pair both approaches. That's that's good policy. And it's absolutely necessary. All right. There you go. So as I said, please do go check out the video. It's on the website and it will be linked to actually, I'm probably going to just embed it directly in today's show post as well. So go to greenmajority.ca to watch that video. It's, it's just about 10 minutes. Totally worth it. Um, first of all, you hear the unmangled version of the audio, uh, but also you get to the opportunity to to see the art. I took a whole bunch of B-roll of, of some of the masks and stuff like that. So it's really worth watching. Go ahead and check that out. But now we're going to go to, I mentioned Kevin's name earlier. He is in the studio, but he's our intrepid tech today um so kevin's gonna uh, tell us i believe what we're gonna be listening to oh he's not ready he's busy he's busy wrangling with the computer so we'll maybe we'll hear about the music break when we come back uh, but are we ready to go by nod we're ready to go all right so you're listening to the green majority here on CIUT. we'll be back in just a moment after this music break it's all the picture and all your while you were waiting Ready to brush me off We could be friendly We could be out of touch We could be famous Or even infamous If you are I'm Derek Kester, your host, listening to The Green Majority, produced live here. It's live on Friday, uh, January something. I don't know what day it is. <laughs> January That's the 8th. That's how you can tell it's live. <laughs> That's how you know it's live. I don't even know what day it is. Uh, January the 8th here in Toronto at CIUT 89.5 FM, and also syndicated nationally all the way across the country through a wonderful network of very appreciated community radio partners. If you're listening on your local station to us, maybe send them an email and say, thanks for playing The Green Majority. 
That'd be nice. Even if you don't like the show, just mm. because, you know, it'd be a nice thing to do. Uh, you could also be listening on the podcast. And if you are, don't worry, we'll be coming back to our special bonus show format as of next week as well. But I have one more sad announcement, which is that uh, Kevin is actually going to have to go on Hades for a little while, even longer than when he was uh, running for the Green Party recently. And, and uh, for for objectivity reasons, he, he stepped away from the show. Um, so he's here this week as our tech, and he might be in last week, and then that's about it. So, Kevin, would you please uh, tell us what we were listening to, and then maybe also, uh, you know, say something like, peace, suckers, or something. I don't know. <laughs> no one told me this was a live show. <laughs> I refuse to be alive for this. Uh, <laughs> that, was, um, that was Basha Bulat, uh, Infamous. That's off of her uh, new album, the name of which escapes me at the moment. She's, uh, she's a, an Ontario artist, I think Hamilton-based, and a gorgeous singer. And that was infamous. Um, yeah, and what, sorry, was I supposed to say something else? Well, just me. I don't know. Maybe I like I'll see you guys later. Have fun. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, it's uh, your parting words. Oh, because I know God. you're here next week, but you might have to tech again. So yeah, well, um, my, so long, and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, um, excellent reference. Yeah, except, anyone who got that gets ten points. Except I gave up eating fish about twenty years ago. <laughs> um, but but thanks for those ones. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, I've had the tremendous good fortune over the last two years to just be chronically underemployed, uh, <laughs> and and as much as I've enjoyed that. Um, I'm going to be less chronically underemployed for the next uh, year or so. Have uh, you not been getting Al Gore's checks? <laughs> well, you know, it's true. I, I am in the pocket of Big Kale. And, <laughs> and, and Big Kale pays really well. Um, and, and also, as a vegan, my, uh, my, my grocery bill is just less, people. It's just less. I mean... Uh, and, and, you know, I save so much money on transit now because global warming is making it easy to be a cyclist. I mean, this thing is paying big time for me. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it, yeah, I, unfortunately, Big Kale just doesn't pay as well as, like, work <laughs> and, 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 like, an actual job. And, and also, it just doesn't pay as well as um, the deniers for hire. Uh, that still populate mainstream media commentaries about uh, about uh, extreme weather events, and uh, I, I've lost track lately uh, about how many really sort of gosh golly gee whiz isn't this weather nice uh, commentaries I've heard. You know, you can't talk about warm weather in winter without some news presenter turning to their partner and saying, "Are you enjoying this wonderful mild weather? Gee, it's like spring in Dece- in, in January. This is fabulous." And then, you know, coupled with that is all of these articles about extreme, the fact that we're experiencing nothing but extreme weather events now. Like every event now seems to be once in 100 years, once in, once in 1,000 years, once in 500 years. And all of the, lately, all of these articles are, are referring to, you know, super El Nino. This is a super El Nino. And then in the same article, you cannot find the words climate change. And uh, like all of mainstream media has Dave Phillips, senior climatologist at Environment Canada, on speed dial. And they trot him out every single time. Like, every single one of them trots him out every single time. And says, essentially, Dave, Dave, is this climate change? Well, get your head out of your butts, mainstream media. (laughs) If we had an extreme weather event every single day of the year, for a year, and you trotted any climatologist out and said, is this climate change? They'd say, I don't know. At no point in time would you be able to point to any single extreme weather event and say, yes, this one, today. This one was climate change. Wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah, you know how the cyclone spins left instead of right? That's how you know it's climate change. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, you're asking the wrong question, folks. 
You know, and then the other one that drives me nuts is, do you think this is a taste of things to come? No. No, it isn't. It's already here. Witness that you can see it. Witness that it is the topic of this ridiculous discussion. And then for his part, because I've been paying attention to this for many years, for his part, Dave Phillips, senior climatologist in Environment Canada, never, ever, ever seems to take the opportunity, or at least it never comes across in the articles where he's quoted, to disabuse mainstream media of this ridiculous mindset that they're bringing to this discussion. He never seems to take the opportunity to educate them, to say, you're not asking the right question. And he seems to close every interview with a, but on the bright side. (laughs) So recently, this utterly bizarre phenomenon in the ocean, this blob, (laughs) it's the blob, (laughs) I mean, if, if, better, than a, better than the coming zombie apocalypse has to be the blob <laughs> lurking in the ocean. And it is this about a million square kilometers or so of water that's about three degrees warmer than the surrounding oceans. And this has been going on for like two years. And recently, it seems like it's breaking up. Some people, some people are saying, this is nuts. This is terrifying. <laughs> this is extreme. And other people are going. And then in one particular article where, you know, Dave Phillips was trying out, you know, it's like, well, yeah. But look on the bright side, it'll spawn some PhD dissertations. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for that. So if I have a parting comment, it's to mainstream media. You know, just get you your suck. just get your heads out of your rear ends on this. <laughs> Call me. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm no expert, but I can tell you the right questions to ask. I can absolutely tell you better questions to ask. Stop asking if a weather event is climate change. Stop asking if extreme weather is a sign of things to come. And weirdly, uh, while climate really is the long-term aggregate of weather events, uh, the long-term aggregate of ridiculous reporting on weather events will not become reporting on climate change. (laughs) Thank you very much, Kevin Farmer. (laughs) I want to point out that during our interviews, uh, I asked one of them uh, if they were a f- asked if they if there was a show, and they were like, "Yes." And I was like, "Why is Kevin Farmer your favorite?" <laughs> and then <laughs> she did not understand the joke. Uh, it's only only <laughs> that, because the only person who's ever anyone's favorite is Kevin Farmer. That's right. <laughs> So you know somebody who hasn't actually been listening. Uh, so we're going to get down to uh, to business now here, and I want to go to Emma uh, first. I'll just outline quickly. Of course, what we're talking about is the uh, there's a, a lawsuit right now. <clears throat> Uh, being pursued by uh, on sorry on behalf of the Keystone uh, XL uh, pipeline on behalf of Trans Canada, who's essentially suing the U.S. government uh, because the uh, the pipeline was knocked down. I, I really tempted to go to the amazing quote here, but I promised Stefan I'd let him do it. So uh, before we go to the amazing quote uh, from Trans Canada the, in the filing, uh, MA for initial comments, please. Yes. So basically, the claim that's being made is that President Obama went outside the scope of what he's able to make decisions on and that uh, the the Keystone XL pipeline was rejected not on its own merits, but for political reasons. So that, as I understand it, is the basis of this case. And I'm going to borrow a phrase that Kevin just used, and hopefully he won't mind me using it in a different context this is a sign of things to come. <laughs> so this case is being brought um, through the NAFTA agreement, 
which I believe everyone is aware that it's a limited agreement because it only has the North American countries party to it. But why I say this is a sign of things to come is that, you know, we've had a lot of discussions around the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement on the show. And I believe we're going to be seeing a lot more of these kinds of cases when governments make decisions that are potentially in the best interest of their populations. But that may be considered to come into some sort of conflict uh, with the trade provisions that they've signed on to. What I think is kind of interesting and ironic in all of this is that President Obama is being challenged on going outside the scope of what he's able to make decisions on. Yet, I didn't see any commentary like that when President Obama and other world leaders agreed to the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement, uh, which they're doing on behalf of their country. So no one has a problem with the executive level taking decisions like that. I mean, yes, yes, the TPP needs to be ratified um, in houses of governments in the respective countries, but ultimately the executive were able to make that decision and agree to it. And nobody's challenged them on that. But when it comes to making a decision like rejecting a pipeline, then we're seeing a legal challenge being put forward. And I, I do find that to be a little bit ironic. And I think we've we've discussed at some length the absolute threat to public well-being when governments can't actually take decisions without feeling they're going to be sued uh, by private sector interests uh, if they take decisions that are ultimately in the interest of their public. All right. So I want to go to Kevin, for, or Kevin, Stefan for the quote in a second, but I just want to stick something in there, which is funny. So one of the other angles to this that always gets my attention, too, is that, you know, we talk about sometimes the revolving door between government and private industry. And so, well, you know, among there are many, many reasons why some of the So first of all, some of the biggest champions of this are the, you know, we say we're MA was just uh, correctly identifying there that it still has to be ratified. But a lot of people that are in, in involved in that decision are people that are currently cheerleaders. So we're not super, you know, can, we're not super <laughs> we're expectant that, uh, that there's going to be much opposition to passing it in many places, depending on sort of, you know, a variety of factors. But the other thing, of course, is that, you know, in many cases, these people who are in government who are currently cheerleading it are, are cheerleading it sometimes for political sort of ideological reasons, but sometimes because they know they're going to go and get a job with these com- companies later and they're going to get $700 million a year to sit on their butts for the rest of their lives for essentially handing Canadian, American, and Australian, Mexican, you know, Chinese democracy well, – Sorry, forget the last one. Uh, democracy is a way to private, international, multinational corporations. So I'd be like, okay, fine. You guys can vote on this. Uh, and I'm not being serious, of course, because this wouldn't actually completely solve the problem. But just as far as like making a point, be like, great, you guys can vote on this. Um, but the second you leave government, you're never allowed to work for private industry again. And you will now live on minimum wage. And we would solve two problems very quickly. One, they might actually look at this objectively and not in their own self-interest. And B, we'd probably get a huge boost to the minimum wage. <laughs> Stefan for the quote. Uh, no, yeah. So. So what what I want to get into really is is that piece of basically what Trans Canada is arguing, uh, and in the in the, in the very it's only three words which I just which jumped out at me, and it was probably talk about anybody who who read their sort of attack. Uh, but basically, they argued that President Obama acted uh, and his decision to reject it was arbitrary and unjustified, which is perhaps the most wrong thing that has been said in 2016. Uh, you know, so you, far. <laughs> so far, exactly. Uh, what I find so funny about that is, yes, you, like, you know, uh, there's a very specific scope of blah, 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 that, you, that technically you can have within this sort of um, 
that Obama can choose in the state against against these decisions and all this all these natures. But the idea that stopping some sort of emissions could be either arbitrary or unjustified is ridiculous. Unjustified. How about you just read the IPCC? Uh, we have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages justifying this decision. Uh, there are probably there are probably more dissertations. Talk about adding a couple more PhDs. There are probably more dissertations on justifying this decision than there has been on the history of any other decision made by presidents. Uh, no one has ever written so much on a justification for this position. Uh, and and the, what if, but what that hinges on is the idea that somehow listening uh, and reacting to uh, activists or, 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 or really you know, activists or really just climate science in general is political, quote unquote, uh, and, that's, and, that's, and that makes it not important. You know, um, the like if someone wanted to build just a you know if if say a president wanted to build a gigantic wall uh, across the border of I don't know Canada in the United States, uh, Donald Trump, um, and uh, and 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 then and it, but then in Canada decided not to help pay for it. Uh, and someone's like, well, that's because of the pro-Canadian lobby, but not wanting to have a wall built across the whole thing. That's a very political decision on your part. It's like it's, business interests are never political, and public interest is political. By and definition. It's, by definition. Uh, you know, if, if, if a business wants something that's good for the economy, and that's an economic sound decision. If people want it, then it's a political decision, and therefore does not matter. Uh, and it's this dissonance that exists so basically presidents shouldn't be taking political decisions is that what we're supposed to conclude from this discussion exactly. presidents are not allowed to listen to the people because that's president. making a political decision and that's obviously not based yeah. in fact yeah. politics arbitrary. are definitely outside the domain of presidents I yes would, I exactly agree. political uh, leaders always getting very political with things yeah uh, I, I, I just want to get to the last thing is okay go ahead, yeah, yeah uh, which is just uh the last part about this i want to point out is what they're really proving here is the example of what I think the best argument I ever read, best best pay article and argument I ever read uh, for why Keystone XL was such a important fight, uh, which was that in fighting Keystone XL, which you weren't fighting just this one pipeline. Uh, what you were fighting was this deeper understanding that energy infrastructure can dictate by fiat what happens and it has an inherent right to exist and therefore any any way to not any way to put a stop in sort of this type of energy infrastructure or you know oil sands infrastructure in reality um is a uh, it, it, it sh- deserves to exist and therefore to not do it must be unjustified because we've done it for so many times before. Well, you know, but so now if you, so it's, it's, it's a right to exist. And so any action to stop it is somehow you know, completely unreasonable. And it just doesn't make any, it just doesn't make any sense. All right. So actually, um, the thing, MA, we wanted to get to, I'm going to leave that for first thing after the break here because we're running a little bit behind. The last thing I wanted to get in there too is about that people might say that the idea about, you know, it being uh, arbitrary and unjustified be like, well, okay, that's obviously ridiculous. So we don't have anything to worry about. And in this case, it sounds like a lot of people are saying like they don't really expect there to be any danger of them winning. Um, But the important... um, the important thing on this too is that when they're talking about making legal decisions, um, they have to refer to what's actually on the books. And what's on the books in this case is are these trade agreements? And they're not done in regular courts. They're done in these international courts that are run by the corporation. So they don't need to prove that it's not that 
within the context of what a reasonable person would understand what, what Stefan was talking about. They just need to meet the specific technical loophole of the specific language that they wrote that's arbitrated by their friends to be able to get away with this stuff. So you should actually be very concerned because this isn't – we're not talking about a fair fight in this particular case. Although uh, talking about fair fight uh – the United States has a hundred percent claim, a hundred percent win rate on all NAFTA claims against it. Uh, <laughs> so, as far as you know, as far as that is also unreasonable and probably has gone a lot of bad ways other times. At least in this one instance, the the big guy winning is probably a good thing. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to our second and final music break here. We'll come back and we've got a couple more news stories. Sorry, don't go anywhere. I'm your host, Darren Case. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful radio community partners, or possibly on our podcast. You can check out information about all that and everything we talked about today at greenmajority.ca. But here we go. We're going to go to our final music break and we'll be right back. Majority at CIUT 95 and our wonderful community partners. We're running a little tight on time, so Kevin, we're just going to go to you just for the song title, if you don't mind here. Do not mind at all. That was uh, <laughs> the person who needs a break for me the most is me. <laughs> uh, that was uh, that was City and Color, Harder Than Stone. Fabulous. Thank you, Kevin. And we'll get your last uh, last chance to say something next week. But uh, thank you very much preemptively. So, Emmy, we had one other item that you brought in here that we're just we're kind of we're going to kind of just tease it because we want to spend more time on it yesterday. But it was you said it was boiling your blood this morning. So, go yeah, ahead. absolutely. I, I was all fired up about it. And so the one thing we're just going to introduce and then we'll pick up later this season is it's about the global Apollo program to tackle climate change. I just found out about this yesterday reading the London School of Economics Connect magazine. So what this is essentially is a proposal to dramatically bring down the cost of renewable energy to enable the world to make the transition off fossil fuels with a particular focus on research for energy storage. So it's a research program and the name is 
draws on the space analogy of the Apollo program. And the researchers from the London School of Economics, the LSE, are basically proposing that the world needs to invest something similar uh, to the tune of about $15 billion a year for 10 years, which amounts to 0.02% of the world's GDP, and that countries should invest at that level to make this happen. Sound good so far? I was like, oh, this sounds great. Yes, I do believe we need to invest to that extent to, to make this happen. However, what made my blood boil was in part of the article it says – Transparency will be essential and all results discovered through the program will be made publicly available. Great. But the brackets read, although patentable intellectual property will be protected and will remain with those who made the discoveries. So basically what I read into this is that we're going to pour all this public money from different countries into this. But ultimately, the intellectual property, the IP, can be retained and sold. So is this kind of thinking really going to facilitate this monumental transition that we're talking about? Personally, if I pay for something, I don't see why, as a, a public citizen, I wouldn't be able to benefit from that. So I'm going to leave it there. This has all kinds of potential implications, but we're going to pick this up again on a later show. Yeah, all right. So I just have a really quick comment about that, and then we'll go to Stefan for his uh, final uh, uh, special piece. It's sort of the, the <laughs> Stefan special here. It's been your your, your uh, soapbox for a while, this Huzzah. piece of technology. So the thing just quickly on that as well is that, you know, the attitude here a lot of time people will say, you know, I've heard all the time, you know, there will be some sort of corporate answer to some sort of climate-related thing, and, and people will say, well, you know, you're just, you're just, you pipe dream environmentalists, you know, we're offering you a solution here, and, and you're, you're rejecting the doable in the face of some sort of undoable ideal and and you just you're just a dreamer but you don't really know what you're talking about this is how the real world world works uh and i just wanted to say nonsense because the actual so people saying look look here's here's a deal we'll agree to invest all this money if we get to benefit from it and we get essentially the exclusive benefit from it as far as being able to make profits going forward and otherwise we're not going to do it the another way to look at that is we're going to hold this hostage unless we can profit off of it and it's profiting directly off the investment of public money so instead of looking at it as in like well here you're being picky here's an option and you just want some ideal perfect utopian option no it's the reason we only have this as the option is because you're holding the other options hostage and I say nonsense. But as I said, we'll get more into that next week. But I just wanted to double down on MA's frustration about that. Complete nonsense. But Stefan, if you wish to make a final comment on that, feel free. Otherwise, let's talk about phones. Talk about phones. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about phones. Uh, so what's funny about this is I'm now going to go immediately into like a, a consumerism thing. Uh, so you're welcome, corporate America. Uh, or corporate world, I guess. Um, there's So there's a whole bunch so I should note that the, what I talked about a bunch of the time before uh, is 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 a phone not actually this phone uh, this phone is 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 a, is a very similar sort of idea, but the phone previously uh, is actually still being developed by Samsung and Google. Uh, this is a different one. This is called Fairphone, uh, and it's only available in Europe. Uh, and it's the second one, it's Fairphone Two, uh, and the phone itself is 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 a consumerist product. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a in, incre incredibly interesting attempt uh, to create. Uh, a very, very, you know, a, a very sustainable consumerism product. It's still consumption. Uh, it's still all the things. Uh, and but, but you know, it's trying to be. It's called Fairphone because it's trying to be as good as it possibly can uh, in, in in a whole variety of ways. Uh, but why I really want to talk about it? Uh, actually, it's just something that the MA and I have been sort of teasing for at least now almost a month, uh, which is this idea of 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 the idea of planning to win. Uh, and even in our actually in our first in our first segment, uh, he mentioned sort of the idea of looking of looking to the future and really giving people a a a, a 
giving people something tangible they can hold on to of what the future looks like. It's you know, about not just saying don't do that. It's saying and do this instead. Exactly. Or look how cool this is. Let's actually, you know, let like isn't this amazing? You know, um, and and so and so what basically the Fairphone is, a Fairphone Two is this, was this attempt to create an as sustainably sourced phone that also can be repaired. Yes, I said it repaired. What is this, the 1920s? <laughs> well, exactly. You know, the, the, like, the number of, you know, how many people have dropped their phone and basically been, well, that's the end of that phone. It is now useless. Um, or, or you know, or you get to the point where, like, I still have my phone for about three or four years. I stopped updating it about two years ago because at this point I would have updated it uh, to to no longer be basically functional. In fact, there's currently a uh, it, currently there's a set of people who are suing Apple uh, for having basically made their phones no longer usable with the latest update because it's so slow. Uh, and and so here's this idea of here's a phone that you can you know repair, you, you increase the speed on it, and then suddenly you still get to keep your phone. Uh, and that's one small change and something like that. And I think when we're showing people what uh, what the future looks like, uh, this is this is. Oh, I, and when I was in schools, this is actually as a, as a quick side. Uh, when I was doing a bunch of talks to kids in schools, if you ever want to get high schoolers actually fascinated about the possibilities, like climate change, tell them about all the super different things that they could get. Uh, and a repairable phone or a phone that they could upgrade in sort of little ways that interests them. Uh, the you know all these other sort of different solutions that we sort of have that's what sort of inspires you to like go out and it, you know it, it helps that it's still a phone so it's still a thing you can you can attach yourself to uh, but it's it's it has that sort of it shows what we it has a whole ethos I think behind behind it uh, that is exactly the ethos we need the next stage of consumerism to get to. So a good example for me just to just to get people's heads thinking about what we mean by that. So for me, my phone I, I use it for some very basic organizational stuff. I check my calendar constantly because Google Calendar runs my life, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, and I like collecting media with it. So I, I you know the microphone's not great, but I wish I could like you know talk and do like you know stuff for the radio show maybe on my phone and I and I like taking a lot of pictures and video, but I, I don't like run apps. I don't, I don't need any visual quality, right? So for me, if I was able to sort of like pick and choose components and upgrade things selectively, I would get a really good camera and I'd get, um, you know, and essentially the most basic touchscreen and, but like none of the other features, right? Like I don't need a crazy fast processor. I don't need any. And so essentially you're just like, well, I want this and that. And it, it reminded me of before we will go to Emmy for a final sort of comment on this. Uh, it reminded me of the, the, um, I don't know if it's the CRTC, I might be getting it wrong, but the Canadian agency that regulates sort of media and stuff just passed a new regulation that will come into law soon, uh, about for, uh, essentially making it law that you must be able to, in addition to some clarity on bill stuff that you have to be able to, uh, choose on your cable package that you want to pay for individual channels. It's the exact same concept. And the, and the reason for it is identical. And so the reason for the justification for this being a thing that not only would be good to have, but that we should have to be able to be offered this it now that it's technologically capable and possible, it should be enforced that it's the norm that you can do this uh, because it's good for the consumer. Uh, honestly, I think it's good for the companies and that they're just not thinking about the long term. Um, and it's, it's really good for everybody. We just sort of sometimes need to, sometimes something is better doesn't necessarily mean people will do it. And just because people aren't doing it isn't because it's not a better option. That people, I think, miss really uh, underestimate the amount of inertia and, and the fact that creativity and, and innovation doesn't kick in until there's some form of selection pressure uh, to borrow a term from biology. So, and anyway. I really like the reference you made, uh, Darren, to what is this, the 1920s? And at that point, is so valid up till quite a lot more 
recently than the 1920s, things were actually made to last. Now, I don't want to sound overly nostalgic, but it's really only our generation that has this concept of having to get the same thing every year or two, particularly cell phones, things have been built to last. And we do need to return to that. And I like the fact that we acknowledge that this is not a new concept that's just being being launched. Now, we need to return to a better way of doing things. um, And look at our take a very strong critical look at our consumption patterns and actually just let go this idea that we need a new phone every one to two years. And of course, going back to the original thread of giving people options, what I like about this is that we are now looking at giving people the option of not having to replace their phone. And, you know, it's not just saying don't do it. It's here's a here's a product that's not going to, quote unquote, make that necessary. Now, what I see as necessary and what other people see as necessary might be different because I wanted to keep my phone that just had a keypad mm-hmm. um, as long as I possibly could. And that that became no longer possible after a while. Uh, and I was mocked the other day for the look of my smartphone messaging, which I've I've just hung on to and I refuse to buy a new phone. So this is music to my ears. <laughs> yeah, and and just as a as a as a final as a final piece uh, to this sort of bit, is it, 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 we've talked about this before, and I think Emma sort of centered around the exact interesting part of this is that so many of of the pieces of this sort of uh, ongoing what 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 a low carbon future looks like are just things people did eighty years ago. Uh, so many pieces well, you describe, or, or more recently, <laughs> yeah, or, and are currently, honestly, happening now in other places. Yeah, uh, in reality, uh, but sort of, you know, the only the last 50, 60 years have we decided that everything needs to break in two in two months, uh, and and that was to drive you know this economic growth. I put that in square quotes, um, and it's just like. You know, you, you describe you describe uh, the sharing economy or ride sharing apps or 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 this a phone you can fix to your you know to your grandparent or to someone in another part of the world. They'll just laugh at you and be like, "Yeah, that's that's life. You're not blowing my mind here." Uh, and you can repackage it in a sexy phone, but you're, it's still it's still what everyone has been doing. And it's just, it's it's which is why I guess when someone says, and this is my last thought uh, when you earlier, Darren is. Uh, when you said uh, this idea that like it's doable, and I refuse to accept that it's not, it's doable because we did it, <laughs> and we're doing it other places. That's why we know it's doable. It's we. It's, it's it's not like this crazy new idea. It's look, these things are happening. We've seen them happen. There we go. All right. So the uh, the final thing we have time for here, I, I just came up with an idea. You know, with as far as all the plenty that we have recently, it's like a kid with a bowl of jelly beans. Mm-hmm. And the technological advancement that we got was that we developed a bigger shovel. The kid learned that instead of picking them up individually, he could scoop them all up with his hand. And that's the plenty that we have. The problem is the bowl of jelly beans is still the same size, and now we're just eating them faster. It's going to make <laughs> us sick, and we're going to run out faster. Some of us are eating them faster. It's a metaphor. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all real soon.